Grace, mercy, and peace to you. And God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the chocolate bunnies and the cream eggs and the jelly beans that long gone by now around your house, eaten, digested, and forgotten. That the only remains of last week's celebration are probably a few strands of that, that colorful Easter egg basket grass that has up to now managed to somehow evade your vacuum cleaner. So while you might think this is the first Sunday after Easter, that it all happened a week ago, churches are run by committees, and that means things tend to move a little slower. And mainline denominations like ours are also heavily influenced by centuries of worthy tradition. So while it was Easter last week, it still is around here. The second Sunday of Easter. And it will be next week, too. Even as we wean ourselves off from some of the Easter hymns. But this time it's not a committee's fault. So much happened on Easter and the week surrounding Easter that there was just too much to talk about on one Sunday. And it's all that important. So last week we talked about Easter morning. And today's Gospel reading is all about what happened on uh, Easter evening. Uh, the, even the week following that. To be honest, Easter Sunday we get together for worship is really a celebration of Easter, a little Easter celebration. And it has been ever since those early Christians, those first century Christians, chose the day of resurrection to be their new Sabbath. Easter is God's promise that his, his son's suffering and death in our place for our sins was acceptable to him for the debt we owe. And celebrating that will never go out of style. And what a great celebration we had on course last week around here. And what a week it had been previously as we worshipped our way from, from Jesus' triumphal Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem. And then the, the Monday uh, Thursday uh, worship in, in the upper room with his disciples where he instituted the Lord's Supper and taught them about servitude. On Good Friday was the solemn remembrance of our Lord's crucifixion. And we recognize that while all but one of Jesus' closest followers had deserted him, that we were there too. This morning it's evening. And that may be exactly what the disciples were doing. Remembering as they gathered together behind locked doors. Remembering their way through the roller coaster. It really was the previous week. And what a week it had been since Jesus' entrance into the city to the waving of palms and cheering crowds that packed the place for the Passover festivities. The ruling Jewish council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, had lost two of its members that week. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had defected to Jesus' camp. Driven by faith in Jesus as the Christ, uh, the Messiah. Friday had been a tense day with the Lord's arrest and trial during the, the overnight hours of Friday morning, followed by his crucifixion. Saturday, the Sabbath, had been a day of mourning. The body of Jesus lay in a, a guarded, sealed tomb. So many people were devastated by his death. Their hopes of a, a renewed Israel, uh, the glory days of Israel, uh, crushed. Wary of an uprising of Jesus' followers, a pilot would have been receiving continual reports that weekend. The questioning of the centurion in charge of the crucifixion had revealed that based on what that man had seen and heard on Golgotha, his personal conviction was that Jesus had shown himself to really be the Son of God, just as he claimed. And then this morning, last Sunday morning, and the timeline that we're following, the guard charges watching over the tomb and, and returned to the governor terrified, terrified with the tales of angels and broken seals and rolling stones. 
Think of what must have been going on in the governor's mind. He was the one in charge of keeping the peace, of keeping Rome proper, arm's length. Now this morning came the news of the empty tomb and a highly suspicious story being circulated by the chief priest that Jesus' own followers must have somehow disabled the guards and went off with his body so they could claim he'd risen from the dead. And where were those disciples? You couldn't question someone you couldn't find. Well, as it turned out, on this Easter evening, they're, they're cowering in a nondescript room behind locked doors. And for good reason. According to their best information, they're being accused of grave robbing for the purpose of insurrection. Something they really knew nothing about. Something that only added to their own confusion. Something that meant they were probably being hunted. That's where our gospel lesson picks up the story. One of the most famous of all the gospels, because it ultimately speaks to a deep human condition. In the face of confusion and CSI, proof makes positive world where the physical evidence tends to be king, doubt can be the place where many people start. Sometimes it can be useful to keep us from being scanned by, by unsavory types who would make our money and harder possessions their own. Doubt calls for an examination of the evidence, and the evidence of the resurrection have been piling up. You know, we call this the story of Doubting Thomas, but as the story opens, the disciples are gathered together minus Thomas. You have to wonder if they were already guilty uh, of doubting, at least in the same way that Thomas was accused of being. Mary Magdalene had already come to them, uh, announcing that she'd seen the Lord, and she brought a personal message from him. Peter, too, has had some kind of uh, uh, personal encounter with Jesus that day. And Jesus had appeared to two other followers that afternoon who were already on the road heading home to Emmaus, probably hoping to put the crucifixion behind them and get back on with their own lives. Unrecognized, he walked with them, he talked with them, heard them share their sorrow about the things that had happened in the city, uh, their dashed hopes. He'd even broken bread with them before they suddenly recognized who he was. And then he just vanished. Well, they run out of the house and made their way the eight miles back into the city to share the good news with the others that Jesus was alive. Well, we can guess that because of their afternoon encounter and their round trip journey, that it was probably getting to be, you know, later in the evening by now, maybe, maybe about eight o'clock or so. Some of the disciples in that room would have already believed based on their own personal encounters or maybe from the eyewitnesses of, of other people they knew. But, you know, owing to human nature, owing to the fact that rising from the dead is not an uh, ordinary thing, you know, others just weren't sure, weren't sure what quite to make of it. That's about the time Jesus shows up. John specifically mentions that the doors were locked, probably to indicate that the Lord's entrance into the room that night was uh, somehow other than the conventional way. First, he wasn't there, and then he was. He didn't knock, and he didn't come empty handed. Peace be with you, he says. It was a common enough Jewish greeting. But when it comes to Jesus, it's more than a greeting. It's a gift. And it was exactly what they needed. John says that he showed them his hands and his side, details to prove he was the same person who was crucified. And they were glad to see him. Those marks were the birthmarks of his new life. And they knew that he did exactly what he said he would. Risen from the dead. He conquered death. His body had been glorified in new life, but he was no ghost. And now for the disciples, there was no need to fear. The Lord was alive. And come one day, everything had changed. 
The peace of Christ, that unique peace we experience through Christ, is grounded in the fact of his resurrection. It's a, a peace that sustains. As he stands before them with his nail-scarred hands and feet, his sword-pierced side, he's living proof that death won't have the last word with them either. Because I live, you also will live. He told them that earlier, but they hadn't really understood. They'd forgotten. But until now, the details would come back. The Holy Spirit would, would bring them back. You know, whenever we forget the peace of Christ, every child of God has been given through the constant presence of the Spirit. We risk losing sight of the risen Christ. And when that happens, we open ourselves up to fear and to doubt, things that will work to bury our hope if we give them a chance. The peace of Christ reminds us of Jesus' words to his disciples on the night of his arrest. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He said, don't be afraid. The world they were about to go back into with this good news was a tough place. It was a world that finds its peace in the security of wealth or the protection of armies or, or the isolation of a triple locked door. But there's no real peace in any of these things because all of them will eventually become useless. See, Jesus' peace is an eternal peace made possible by his resurrection from the dead. A peace that reaches into your very soul. Our Savior has guaranteed our future by a cross and an empty tomb. A future that's ready for us to move into right now through faith in him. But Jesus has brought more for them than just his peace. He's also brought his plan. They knew their mission. And news like this couldn't be kept to yourself. They had a story of God's love and an empty tomb to take out into a world that at that point was sitting very comfortably in Satan's lap. A world of people who were dead in their trespasses and sin. They must have wondered how they could ever pull off a project like that without Jesus to lead them. As it turns out, they won't have to. Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a true man, remember, but also a true God. And they wanted to go into all the world without God at, the side, at their side or in their hearts. They'd be empowered by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, something else never to forget. People who have been given that peace of Christ are never left without the presence of Christ. The Spirit is His continuing presence. The Spirit would enable them, he told them earlier, to do even greater things than He does. It would enable believers today to do even greater things than we might ever even be willing to, to imagine. When doubt and fear creep into our life, we can rely on the witness of the Spirit to bring to mind all the important details, the promises of God's presence and power for us. And then Jesus gives them the power to forgive and retain sin in his name. It's a gift given not just to those few followers, but, but to his whole church. It's a tool for uh, to drive people plagued by sin back to the cross and the empty tomb. The place where broken hearts are healed and made well again. And not only the authority to assure someone that they're repentant heart and their faith in by the repentant heart and their faith in Jesus, they can be sure their sins have been forgiven. But the willingness to forgive others themselves. And the desire to see others experience forgiveness. After Jesus had left the one disciple had been their return, they told him what happened, but he wanted proof with his own eyes. When the others reported what they'd seen and what they what they'd experienced, Thomas only felt skepticism and doubt. They were well-intentioned, he could see that, but they weren't very well evidence. And I don't know that he doubted Jesus so much as maybe the, 
the testimony of his friends. You know, Peter, for one, Peter had denied knowing Jesus not once, not twice, but three different times on the night of his arrest. Uh, while, while Peter stood in the uh, courtyard of the high priest, at the very same time Jesus was being tried inside. Most of the others had run for the hills when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the car. And with the exception of John, they didn't seem to have been anywhere near the cross on Good Friday. Afraid, legitimately, I guess, probably, that, that they might end up on one too. But that kind of behavior tends to discredit the witness, doesn't it? And so are we talking about a doubting Thomas or maybe a disillusioned Thomas? A disillusion served over the crucifixion of the Lord. They were ready for big things to happen and looked like they weren't going to happen anymore. A reluctant Thomas, maybe. It wasn't that he didn't want to believe it was all true. He just wanted tangible, touchable evidence. And that doesn't really seem unreasonable since those others, his friends, told him that Jesus had just been there in person. That's when our reading jumps ahead a week, and we find our disciples still behind locked doors, still fearing for their own safety. This time, Thomas is with them. Before the crucifixion, Thomas had shown himself to be fearless and loyal and trustworthy and, and faithful. It was who he was, but we don't remember him for that. We also forget that in the very moments of Thomas's doubt, we have the one place in all the Gospels where the divinity of Christ is bluntly and undeniably expressed. Again, Jesus appears in the room with them. Seeing the risen Christ invited to examine the scars for himself, Thomas makes his earth-shattering confession of faith. He proclaims, my Lord and my God. Not teacher, not rabbi. Lord, not Messiah. God. It's the only place where Jesus is called God without any qualification of any kind. Those aren't the words of a doubter. Sadly, they're not the words he's remembered for either. Unfortunately, history is remembered for Jesus' comment. Probably, probably think about it more for our sake than Thomas's. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus didn't appear that second time with Thomas in attendance to belittle him. He came to bring him peace. Peace through faith, not in an idea, not in a concept, not in a principle, but in a person. A person of Christ. A real in the flesh person, one who suffered like we suffered, who was tempted in every way like we're tempted, who lived among us and eventually gave his life for us. Thomas had believed not because of this post-resurrection appearance, but because he spent so much time, three and a half years, following Jesus around, around Judea. He knew what kind of man Jesus was already, that he was worthy of Thomas's trust and faith. That he never backed down from a promise, even when he was nailed to a cross. His confession in the person of Christ, my Lord and my God, is one that provides a foundation for our own faith, too. It's a faith that doesn't subscribe to that old adage, seeing is believing, but rather the Jesus brand of faith that reminds us believing is seeing. God has come to us in Jesus Christ continues his mission through doubters and, and misfits like Thomas and just like us. You know, faith is a willingness to follow him, even when we're not sure where it will lead, simply because we know him. Faith is trusting not only that Jesus is the way, but that he will provide a way. It's a willingness to plan and reach out in new ways because we know the one that holds the blueprints for the whole world in his hands. 
who sees and holds our future. And that when we put our trust in Him, we know without a doubt that He'll be going into that future with us. It's all part of the Easter good news. So embrace it by embracing Him. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.